Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Danny Matranga, and in today's episode, I'm going to be answering some of your questions. We have a variety of questions from fitness to nutrition to personal growth to education, and I'm going to be working through them today on this episode, giving you my best answers live and in real time, fielding these directly from my Instagram. So if you guys want to ask questions specifically for the podcast, you can go to the link below in the show notes or keep your eyes peeled on my Instagram or for my Instagram question box that I throw up on my story there once or twice a week. And I field questions for the podcast from there all the time. Just as a housekeeping note, things have been a little chaotic in my personal life. I'm getting ready to officiate my best friend's wedding. And as I get closer to that, I am finalizing the kind of last few pieces for my training studio slash physical therapy clinic. I'm getting turf installed in the next couple weeks. I'm getting signed installed, still dealing with the city with regards to um, inspections and such. But for the most part, things are trending very much in the right direction. I'm very excited about a soft summer opening and I'm still in the middle of a moving. I'm currently recording out of my bedroom uh, and all of the training or sorry, not training studio, but recording studio stuff is kind of thrown around loosely. So I do appreciate you guys bearing with me as I work my hardest to continue to get you two episodes a week, whether that be an interview format. We have some exciting interviews lined up, whether that be in the form of question and answer episodes or specific topics, tips, tricks, etc. So lots kind of coming down the pipeline for me here in the next couple weeks. And I really appreciate you guys um, being so, uh, you know, just kind of consistent, whether that be with interacting with me on social media or here on the podcast. You guys are, you've been consistent, you've been patient, and I'm going to continue to try to bring you the best information and fitness specific stuff that I can. Speaking of fitness specific stuff, before we get into the questions, the app-based training programs I have, Home Heroes and Elite Physique, we launched those through the Train Heroic app last month. It is so exciting. We've got over 100 trainees in those two app-based programs, two really cool communities where you can interact directly with me and my coaches. There's a link to access this in the show notes. You can try it for free for a week, but it's been so cool to watch this thing grow. Four to five a week, gym-specific training for women, female bodybuilding program, Elite Physique. That is an amazing continuation of the female physique programs I've done, but with full-blown tutorial sets, reps, exercise cues, etc. And Home Heroes, you can do at home with just bands and dumbbells four days a week. If you need form review, cueing, substitutions, again, all available right there for you in the app. You get direct, amazing access to highly qualified coaches and myself for any questions and comments you have. And you can still apply for one-on-one coaching at corecoachingmethod.com slash coaching if, in fact, it is that you need that more one-on-one tailored help. But without further ado, guys, getting into your first question, there's two questions here. Book recs to learn more from it's fit ash and best book slash resources for learning about all things fitness and nutrition from Libby Vanostran. And so there are a number of good books for learning about exercise and exercise physiology, specifically things that I think will help. I think again, you can split exercise physiology and exercise science into things like anatomy to things like nutrition, right? But some of my favorites from a more perhaps textbook standpoint first are The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy by Brad Schoenfeld, Uh, Hargrave's Exercise Metabolism. That's a textbook. You can probably get uh, second edition there, probably still be fine. Tudor Bompa's Periodization, 
there's probably some newer additions there. Those are kind of the basics. As for books that I think are helpful, uh, The Hungry Brain by Stefan Guionnet really is a wonderful, I think, book uh, as it pertains to understanding the nuances of appetite and how our brain and neurophysiology impacts our food decisions. Uh, Sapolsky's Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which is excellent for understanding the physiology of stress. Uh, the Little Black Book of Workout Mo- Motivation by Legion CEO Mike Matthews. That's a very uh, enjoyable work uh, uh, and, and take, I should say, on doing the work. I, I enjoyed that book quite a bit. Uh, the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, uh, the nutrition pyramids from Eric Helms, Andy Morgan, uh, and one other author whose name is kind of evading me right now. Andrea Valdez. That's what it is. Had to look that one up. Um, that's, those are all excellent. I really enjoy the great courses. They have a course called nutrition made clear. Um, that's a phenomenal audio course that if you have an audible membership, you can access for free. That's like a college undergrad nutrition course. Uh, that I think is just really, really awesome. Strength Training Anatomy by Frederick Duvalier or Delavier. It's French. I can never remember how it's pronounced. That one's been around forever. That's really good. If you followed me for a long time, you know I recommend anatomy coloring books, whether that be to learn about the various soft tissues, the bony landmarks, or even just the muscles and how they work. Anatomy coloring books can be a fun way to unwind, reset, and enhance your understanding of anatomy. And then uh, my good friend, and guest of the show, Austin Current, partnered with DK Pub- Publishers to make a very illustration-heavy, um, uh, The Science of Strength Training is the title of the book, but it's a very illustration-heavy, um, My, in my opinion, it might be the best book if you just want to learn about exercises and how exercises specifically kind of target muscle groups. So more of a like spin on what I would describe as functional anatomy. That's a really, really good book. And that's from Austin Current, good friend of the show. So those are some books that I enjoy that I think are very, very helpful for learning the basics of exercise science, fitness, nutrition, and physiology. So those are kind of some go-tos there for me. Uh, This question comes from Chanel AP. She asks, what is the ideal rate of weight gain during a building phase to achieve minimal fat gain? So I think this is very hard to do without taking a consistent daily weight and then averaging it out, but between 1% to 1.5% of total weight gain per month. So if you're a 150-pound female, you might be looking to gain somewhere between one and a half, right, 1.5 to maybe 2.25 pounds a month max, 1% to 1.5% of total body weight per month max. Muscle growth is a slow process, and so the more advanced you are, like if you were to gain a pound a month uh, and you've been training for 10 years, I don't think you're going to gain 12 pounds of muscle in a year. I think you might gain four pounds, three pounds of muscle and nine pounds of fat, but I think that 1% range, or I should say that 1% multiplier tends to work out really well for eliminating excessive weight gain via body fat that can often happen with overfeeding. So knowing that you're going into a planned period of overfeeding, even though, yes, you are pairing that period of overfeeding specifically with uh, you know, hard progressive training, you cannot guarantee that that overfeeding will result in exclusively uh, the, the exclusive gain of muscle tissue. It's just not possible. So to maintain 
the, let's say, body compositional level that you're comfortable with to not gain too much body fat, you would want that overfeeding to be such that it stimulates muscle growth uh, and does not have a ton of overflow, meaning like you're only eating so much as it might be so much as is required to optimize muscle gain or to come close to optimizing muscle gain. And so for most people, I think that's going to be between three and 600 calories above TDEE or above total daily energy expenditure. And if you gauge your macros correctly and you track them correctly using the various nutritional tools you have to do that and you watch your weight trends your daily weigh-ins will make this almost impossible but your weight trends so you take your weight from the 30th let's say of april and that's 150 pounds and then you multiply all 30 days of may or you add all 30 days of may together and divide by 30, and the average is, let's say, 151.5. So there's a net gain of 1.5 pounds. That would be a very effective rate of weight gain, 1%. Um, you probably would be doing it yourself a service to do something like that compared to like going, oh, I am 150 pounds on May 1st, and oh, I'm 152 pounds on May 2nd. I already fucked up. I gained, you know, over 1%. Blah, blah, blah. That's not how it works. Because remember, those weight trends are going to be transient. So for women, what you might even do, this is something that I think works quite well. Add up all the days that you are not actively menstruating or going through PMS, which if you understand the luteal cycle, you've got the, or the menstrual cycle, sorry, you've got the follicular phase, which is like the 14 days leading up to ovulation, which is right there in the middle. And then you have the luteal phase, which tends to be, um, you know, it contains PMS in the first few days of that follicular phase or actually menstruation. So you've got days like, let's say you have a menstruation for usually last three days. So after your last day, when your period has ended, you could essentially start, you know, kind of adding all those days together up until PMS hits, uh, because those would be the weeks or days and weeks in which I think the female physiology and the hormonal fluctuations that can be uh, let's call it pretty aggressive for some, might skew the data. And while removing that will, of course, manipulate the data, it might manipulate the data such that we get a more accurate representation of lean versus fat mass, as opposed to, say, something like water retention, right? So that's a very effective way you might go about doing that. This question comes from Garrett Grill, and Garrett's question is, is too much olive oil bad? So I think this is a good question. Uh, I think just to keep it simple, as far as dietary fats are concerned and as far as cooking fats and oils are concerned, I think olive oil has a universally well-earned and well-respected status as being a good cooking oil, maybe not for taste for all dishes, but a good uh, element for heating, cooking food. Uh, it's also very popular in things like salad dressings. Uh, so if you were to compare it to some of the potential other options, such as maybe canola oil, rapeseed oil, butter, vegetable oil, right? I think most people would say, well, I think, I think of those fats, olive oil is the healthiest of those fats, because olive oil is a monounsaturated fat, um, you know, it has the potential to help lower your bad or LDL cholesterols. And 
Uh, I say cholesterol is because there's subtypes, but your LDL cholesterol. And additionally, right, like we know that just as a plant compound, olives have antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. So extra virgin olive oil is often thought to be quite nutritious and might help, you know, to curtail excessive inflammation via its antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. Um, I don't think it's the miracle oil that many people think it is, right? You have regularly highly processed olive oils um, that might lose some of these chemical benefits, these kind of polyphenol plant-specific benefits. So dark bottled extra virgin olive oil tends to be a good oil choice. Uh, But yes, you can have too much, as is the case with butter, as is the case with ghee, as is the case with canola oil, as is the case with vegetable oil, as is the case with coconut oil. Because most fats and oils are going to be used in things like cooking and dressings and other stuff, people oftentimes don't have a great gauge for how calorically dense these things really are. But remember, they're almost all fat, almost exclusively fat. So nine calories per gram. So all oils, butters, etc., can add up calorically very quickly. Uh, and this can become problematic for body fat reduction it can be, and become problematic for adiposity. Um, so if you're trying to lose weight or just trying to maintain your weight and not gain any more, too much of any oil could be bad, even if in fact that oil is high in antioxidants and potentially anti-inflammatory and potentially very tasty. As an Italian whose father grew olives on property, like I grew up on a big ranch that my dad had in a small town in Northern California, and he grew tons of grapes and he grew tons of olives. And olives are super yummy. They're super good. They're a fixture in Italian cooking. So I love olives and I love olive oil. But too much of it can lead to excessive body fat gain just via the simple mechanism of it being very high in fat. It's very high in calories because it's exclusively fat for the most part. I like this question. It comes from Karina Zelyeva. And she asks, what sport can I do that will help recovery from the gym? So I think what we would probably want to stay away from are sports that have extremely high explosive demands or they ask you to move in planes of motion at speeds uh, that require either learning how to do it or you haven't done it in a while or there's a large eccentric demand. So there's a huge potential for soreness. So for example, if you do not regularly play flag football or soccer or something that is played on grass and you don't normally move in the frontal or transverse plane and you don't normally engage with surfaces like grass and you don't normally wear footwear that is something spiked like a cleat and you go out and you play two hours of that sport on a novel surface with extremely poor, uh, let's call it, extremely seldomly used or seldomly used motor patterns, meaning like, oh, I I haven't played in years. Like the likelihood of those sports or activities causing soreness that might inhibit your ability to train hard is quite high. The less often you do something, the less often you do something on a specific surface, the less often you move in a specific plane, the more often it is that when you do that for the first time in a while, it's going to shock the system for lack of a better term, and it can result in some soreness. And that right there might disqualify a large majority of options. Things that I find tend to work well tend to not have much eccentric demand or not much demand at all. So hiking or walking or jogging, which oftentimes aren't necessarily sports when we think about, you know, what 
a list of sports uh, and swimming are probably your best options. As far as sports with a low demand, I love golf because even though there is quite a bit of explosive power reserved for swinging the actual club, I do think that golf as a sport is extremely, extremely low, um, let's call it extremely easy to recover from and low fatigue for most people. I'm also a very, very big fan of just shooting the basketball around, which I know, again, isn't the same as playing basketball. Uh, Another one that's become quite popular that I think is probably a little less fatiguing than many is something like pickleball, assuming you don't go balls to the wall or all out. But in truth, most sports are going to get in the way or interfere with your ability to recover from resistance training because they're going to require some recovery for like on their own. So what you might do is you might just cut a training session off because I find many people train, you know, maybe more than they should. I think most people should be around four to five days. So if you're training like six days a week, just cut one of those out and throw a day in for the sport and really focus on recovery. But it it, it can be a little tricky. Taking a little break from the action here to tell you about our amazing partner, Seed. Seed makes the best probiotic supplement on the market, bar none. I'm very confident with that because I think that the probiotic space and the gut health space in general is filled with people who have no idea what they're talking about or who are looking to make a buck. This isn't to say your gut health isn't important. In fact, it's probably one of the most important and most intriguing developments we have seen in modern medicine and modern physiology. Our relationship with our guts is critical. It's crucial. And taking care of that by eating a lot of different plants, a lot of different fruits and vegetables, getting a diverse array of fiber and resistant starches can go a long way, but so can supplementing with a high quality probiotic. Seed makes the best probiotic on the market with 53.6 billion active fluorescent units. These are organisms that are going to be alive and helping transfer a variety of different benefits to the human host. All these things are actually proven to work in humans. These strains work in humans, not rodents. Seed is not uh, cheaping out here by providing you with any random strain. They're providing you with strains that help with digestive health, gut immunity, gut barrier integrity, dermatological health, cardiovascular health, micronutrient synthesis, as well as many other things. They're vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, nut-free, shellfish-free, so very friendly for those of you who may have a variety of different allergies and who are looking for a supplement you can take that can enhance a variety of different things. I have a very, very... uh, good track record over many, many years of having to deal with things like eczema and having to deal with things like psoriasis on occasion, especially when the weather changes. And I swear to you, since I started taking seed, I have noticed substantially less of that. And there's four strains included in seed shown to help with things like atopic dermatitis. So there you go. Not to mention the plethora of strains for the health of your gut. If you're looking to take your gut health to the next level, you can go to seed.com. Subscribe for their daily symbiotic. You can take one or two a day. You can share it with a partner. Sometimes you can do that. Um, But it goes a long way. It's the best probiotic supplement on the market. I absolutely love it. And you can use the code Danny15 to save. Back to the show. What's going on, guys? Taking a break from this episode to tell you a little bit about my coaching company, Core Coaching Method. More specifically, our app based training. We partnered with Train Heroic to bring app-based training to you using the best technology and best user interface possible. You can join either my Home Heroes team, 
or you can train from home with bands and dumbbells, or Elite Physique, which is a female bodybuilding-focused program where you can train at the gym with equipments designed specifically to help you develop strength as well as the glutes, hamstrings, quads, and back. I have more teams coming planned for a variety of different fitness levels. But what's cool about this is when you join these programs, you get programming that's updated every single week. The sets to do, the reps to do, exercise tutorials filmed by me with me and my team. So you'll get my exact coaching expertise as to how to perform the movement, whether you're training at home or you're training in the gym. And again, these teams are somewhat specific. So you'll find other members of those communities looking to pursue similar goals at similar fitness levels. You can chat, ask questions, upload form for form review, ask for substitutions. It's a really cool training community and you can try it completely free for seven days. Just click the link in the podcast description below. Can't wait to see you in the core coaching collective, my app-based training community. Back to the show. What's going on, guys? Taking a break from the show to tell you about our amazing partners over at Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs makes a flagship electrolyte product known as LMNT Recharge. Recharge is amazing. It's got bioavailable forms of sodium, potassium, and magnesium, which can really help you train, contract your tissues, and get hydrated. I love having it in the morning before my fasted training because oftentimes I wake up without an appetite, but I want something in my stomach so I'm not flat, I can get a pump, and I can get hydrated in the gym and still perform my best. I also love to sip on my recharge when I'm on the golf course or especially when I'm in the sauna. The more you sweat, the more likely it is that you will need to replace valuable electrolytes like sodium, magnesium, and potassium. And while if you have high blood pressure, you might not necessarily be a candidate for electrolyte supplementation, many athletes and active adults need more salt and more electrolytes in their diet than they currently get, especially if they sweat, live in warm climates, or humid climates. I found a bunch of different ways to use my recharge, but like I said, I love using it before and during my training. Whenever I do something active outside or my sweat rate increases or when I'm in the sauna and you can actually try it completely for free. All their best flavors that are totally free of sugar have only 10 calories. They're sweetened naturally and they come in amazing flavors like raspberry salt, orange salt, citrus salt. My favorite is the mango habanero or mango chili and the lemon habanero, which I take in the sauna. There's flavors for everybody, and you can check them out by going to drinklmnt slash coachdanny. They'll send you every single flavor in an individual packet. You can try them out completely free. Just pay shipping. Drinklmnt.com slash coachdanny. Get your sample pack today completely for free. Just pay shipping. Back to the show. Okay, so this one comes from at Optimus Perch, and they ask any articles on cholesterol so that you can point to science has changed around it so there's a great fitness podcast called the or i shouldn't say fitness podcast it is a, a health and fitness podcast called the barbell medicine podcast and about two months ago they had a episode or tandem of episodes uh, that focused and emphasized the kind of nuances of cholesterol cholesterol metabolism cholesterol and related medications complications very very well-rounded kind of look at cholesterol and the science around how lifestyle food and medication and all of those various interplays kind of come together and that was an amazing resource like two thumbs up huge claps loved it so just go to the googler type in barbell medicine cholesterol 
give those a listen. I think you'll be very pleased. I learned a tremendous amount from those uh, episodes or episode. It was either one long one split in half or one long one that I split in half, but really, really good. I learned a lot and I thought it was very nuanced and I thought it was communicated really well, even for somebody like myself, who is what I would describe as like entry level science or data literate. Like my ability to understand the higher levels of science and data is limited just by virtue of, you know, not having a PhD and not having been particularly pressed to learn those skills. So to have somebody who's a very effective science communicator uh, explain the science behind cholesterol, but also the data that we have in front of us as it pertains to how a diet and lifestyle and medication can influence cholesterol was really, really helpful. And if you're in the same boat as me, uh, that would be a great place to start. Okay. This comes from Flower Sammy. She asks, casein protein, is it good? So I think when we talk about casein protein, we need to first talk about where it comes from. And so understand that dairy protein is kind of the mother protein or milk protein for both whey and casein. Okay, so casein is actually the protein in milk that gives it its white color. Uh, Cow's milk is about 80% casein protein. And when you start using cow's milk to make other products, whether that be cheeses, whether that be yogurts, whether that be uh, actual forms of filtered milk, right? Milk is processed in some capacity. And so usually when you make cheese, right? I'm sure you guys have heard the Little Miss Muffet, right? Nursery rhyme. Little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey. So a lot of people just have said that and like over the years never really thought, okay, what are curds and whey? I remember when I heard that, I had no idea no idea that this, the way from that nursery rhyme was the same way that's in protein. And so basically what happens when you make cheese uh, is you remove whey protein from the milk protein, right? Whey being the liquid byproduct of the curdling process. And once you get key, uh, a curdled uh, milk, you're mostly left with casein protein. Like cottage cheese is like almost exclusively casein protein. And so, you know, these are just two different forms of dairy protein that digest and are assimilated at mildly different rates. It's for this reason that whey protein has become very popular for post-workouts because it is dissolved and absorbed quite quickly. And casein has become very popular or marketed as such uh, as being better before bed because it is higher in the slower digesting casein peptides. So you end up in a situation where before bed, you take your casein and digest more slowly. Theoretically, you have more protein available throughout the evening and you take your whey post-workout because it dissolves faster. And then you get 30 years of marketing behind that. And you have people asking, should they take casein protein? And the answer to the question, long story short, uh, it's fine to take and you should consider taking it if you tolerate dairy proteins well, and you'd like to get more protein in your diet that doesn't digest as fast as whey. I don't take casein protein. I have not for a while. I prefer whey. Uh, And if I want to slow down the rate at which my whey digests, I can incorporate fats such as peanut butter or almond butter. I do think that casein is totally fine and probably has a similar safety profile that whey. And I've also found that it's extremely good for baking. So if you're somebody who likes to bake protein-rich snacks, uh, I have found that casein, much more so than whey, 
lends itself better to baking. So if you are somebody who's going to be baking with protein, casein might be beneficial to have around. Um, this one comes from Dane Wakawiak. He says, what are your thoughts on creatine for a 13 or 14 year old who's been working out for two plus years? So I did record an episode with Dr. Darren Kandow of the University of Regina out in Canada, specifically about all things creatine. And we did talk about this. That's episode 178. And I strongly recommend checking that out because we cover this and then some. That being said, I do think for a 13 to 14 year old who's lifting for two plus years and who has a pretty nutritious diet, the addition of a creatine supplementation doesn't come across as a red flag. For a healthy young adult, I think creatine supplementation is probably fine. Um, If I could use myself as an example, again, not particularly scientific, but I started taking creatine around 16, 17, and I have not noticed any adverse side effects throughout the 11 plus years, I have been supplementing with creatine almost every day. So for the most part, I think it's probably okay. But as a parent of a 13 to 14 year old, you know, you're going to ultimately have to guide them on this decision-making process. And I think it might be a very good way for you to kind of communicate the importance of doing one's research prior to supplementing. And so my parents wouldn't really cross-check any of the shit that I wanted to take. And this was back in the day where you could buy pretty much anything you wanted at GNC, short of steroids. You can even go to the back and buy pro-hormones. Thankfully, there was some regulation around that by the time I finally started buying supplements. But in the like late 2000s to early te- like 2010s, uh, the supplement industry was the Wild West. And I think what could be a really effective tool for a parent who has a fitness-focused young adult in the house, whether they be a male or a female, who's interested in taking nutritional supplements. Why? I, I, and I wish my parents had done something like this. And again, this might depend on the relationship you have with your child. But say, hey, I understand that you want to take the supplement and I want to help you on your health, fitness, performance journey. That being said, I'd like you to provide... Uh, succinctly for me, some, some, let's say, not evidence, but some resources as to why this supplement is safe for a young adult. Can you compile some resources for me that say this is safe to take for a young adult? Challenge them and, and, and work with them. I think it could be a very uh, effective way to educate them on not, you know, just the ability to research something because anybody can cherry pick, but also being like, Hey, you know, you want to take that. You got to look into it a little more. You want to make sure you're making a good decision. And as your parent, I want to help enable you to do that. So that would be how I'd approach that. But overall, I think it's more than safe. You could definitely go with it, but make them work for it. Um, this last question comes from Julia Saka. She says, what are my thoughts on a BOSU ball workouts? And I actually think if you have been training for a number of years, you've seen BOSU balls get used incorrectly in the gym setting. A lot of people love to have people stand on top of BOSU balls to add a what they think is a balance element to exercises. Um... And I think that's probably going to be okay for most people. It's probably not a dangerous thing. Uh, more often than like not, I would say that like what you're really just doing is making the exercise you're doing on the BOSU ball less effective by standing on the BOSU ball, but it's not like bad or dangerous for most people, assuming you have the stability to stay on top of it. But all the exercises that you're doing standing on a BOSU ball, I think could be removed. I do like to see some athletes using it 
as a proprioceptive tool, like I've seen Saints running back Alvin Kamara, who I think is quite possibly the example of elite uh, elite contact balance at the NFL level, the ability to take contact while still maintaining balance and being able to redirect opposing forces into movement in another direction. Meaning if you take a hit, do you fall down or do you maintain your balance and actually use that hit to propel you in a novel direction, uh, you know, and pick up extra yards. And Alvin Kamara, I've seen for many years trains using that tool. Now he is a freak athlete, elite high level athlete with an unbelievable skill set with regards to maintaining his balance. Do I think that a lot of sports trainers overvalue or oversell the benefits of BOSU ball training? Yes. Do I think there are some perhaps nuanced, creative ways to use it in sports training? Sure. My favorite application for it, and I know this sounds really basic, it's a nice dome. So I can do sit-ups over it, contouring it to my low back, and get a crazy crunch out of my rectus abdominis. Rectus abdominis. Gosh, can you tell it's Friday? Uh, I also like turning it over, which would be dome side down and doing planks on it or things like potty saws or stir the pot uh, regressions for clients if they don't have access to a Swiss ball. I, I think you can also use it at, with like a compressionary, if that's even a real word component where you pull down into it or push down into it. I know the man who invented it, David Dweck, uh, David Weck is kind of a big proponent of using it in that capacity. And sure, it's been bastardized for many years and and used in an overly creative fashion, but I think uh, there's a use for it, and that's why I keep one in the studio. But I don't use it the way you might think. All right, guys, that will do it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, If you haven't yet, leave the show a rating on iTunes, Spotify, five stars tends to be best. I'm not going to pull your leg and force you to leave a five-star review, but literally if it takes one to two minutes, it It would make a huge difference for me if you have that time to leave a honest, slightly smaller than average written review. doesn't have to be huge. can just be three to four sentences about what you enjoy about the show. Hopefully, I can borrow from that to continue to make it better and see what I'm doing right and see where I can improve. Thank you again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next one.